in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. I've got a, a, an interesting story to open with today, and it's, um, I mean, it's from history, but it's one that I learned not because I was doing this research, but because uh, we lived there. So in 1755, on All Saints Day in Lisbon, Portugal, uh, there was a momentous thing that happened that changed history forever. And we, we lived there for about a year, and we were able to learn about this from the locals first before I ever went to the book. So it was really uh, a fascinating thing to see how this connected with what we're going to talk about today. So at the time, Lisbon, Portugal was arguably one of the most important places in the West. Uh, the Portuguese empire was stronger than all in the world, save for possibly Britain. They were always warring. Uh, but this little nation state, this little city had an incredible navy and they went all over and had territories and stuff everywhere. So anyway, uh, All Saints Day, there is a tradition in Lisbon for families to light candles and then they leave the candles going in their homes. They all walk as an entire city. They walk to the various cathedrals. They celebrate mass in, in the different cathedrals in the city. And then uh, they, they walk back and they keep doing different festivities throughout the day. But on that day in 1755, there was a massive earthquake, one of the largest ever felt in Europe. It was felt in North Africa, in Greenland, and there's even reports of people in the Caribbean all the way across the sea feeling this earthquake. 85% of the buildings in Lisbon were completely destroyed, and many of the people in those buildings died. One of the only things that didn't collapse or fully collapse were the parts of the cathedrals that were under the arches. Um, so you know, the, the, all of these, remember they had left candles burning in their homes and then a lot of these places, the, the, the homes fell over. Everything was made out of just cheap wood. And so the entire city started on fire and much of it fell over except for what was under the arches. So it, it seemed at first almost like just a slight favor from God that, you know, if a massive earthquake had to happen, what better time to happen than when all of the city is outside their old little shoddy wooden homes and under the cathedral's arches. Uh, it's one of the few things that held up. But anyway, the, it was really bad. A lot of people already had died. A lot couldn't make it to the cathedral. And then the entire city went up in flames. I mean, if you ever get to the old European cities, it was built long before cars. All the, uh, all the streets are like as wide as your arms, basically. And so everything was really tight and dense and made out of wood. And so the whole thing went up in flames. And not only were people burning and dying, but the fumes itself was enough to choke people. When a fire gets hot enough, it burns up all the oxygen, and there's also toxic fumes uh, that, that come out in the process of this fire. So people were dying in the fumes. So people had nowhere to go but down to the river, the, the harbor, where uh, the, Lisbon, the, the river Teju, we call it, I think, Tagus or Tagus, um, meets the ocean. So yeah, Lisbon is set next to this river. It's one of the most famous harbors in the world where Columbus set sail from there. A lot of these really famous navies from Portugal all were docked right at the harbor of Lisbon in the Teju River. So everyone ran down because like the whole city's burning. They got to go somewhere to stay alive. So they all run down to the river where it meets the ocean and the water was gone. And they thought, you know, this, this might be some sort of miracle from God. You know, if this has to happen, you know, the entire city is going to fall over and then start burning down. Many of us were under the arches and then in, to escape the fumes, we all run down to the ocean. Um, but the water from the harbor has retreated and they're kind of remembering Moses and like what in the world, you know, is going on? 
Um, so they ran and stood in this emptied out seaport. Again, the very place where Columbus set sail. Um, and they walked into the river. Many were amused to see all the things that were in the riverbed. You know, you can imagine if the most wealthy merchant fleet in history had been stationed there for hundreds of years. There's all sorts of cargo from boats that had sunk, things that had been knocked over, tipped over. So there's a lot of stuff that had sunk to the bottom of the harbor. And so they were all looking through all this old precious cargo, sometimes weapons, gold, silver. But now, if any of you know anything about oceanography, what do you do when the water at sea level starts to recede like a mile out to the ocean? Anyone? Run. Sprint for your life, run for high ground. We have the benefit of having the Discovery Channel and having encyclopedias and all this, and most people then did not know anything about how this worked. Um, but if you see the ocean at sea level recede like a mile into the sea, get out of there and go as high as you can. Because this same earthquake that toppled the city, it was a, the fault line was a few hundred miles out in the ocean. The same earthquake that toppled the city also set off a tsunami. And 40 minutes after the earthquake, the tsunami came and hit Lisbon. So you had all these people seeking refuge in the bottom of the basin of the harbor, which is right at sea level. And then a 66-foot wall of water came rushing in at 100 miles an hour from the ocean. So we're not talking a wave, like one wave could crash and maybe some would live. This is a wall of ocean and there's no wave behind it. It's just pure ocean for forever. Um, so the 66 foot wall of water crashes in and sweeps away dozens of thousands of people in a moment. Most of them crushed, most of them killed right away, although some did live to, uh, to talk about it. This wave reached all the way to the middle of Northern Africa. So from your angle, like if Europe's here, and then Africa's right under it. It went all the way to the center of the continent of Africa. This water reached that far. It was so massive. It was the deadliest earthquake in history for that part of the world. Again, 85% of Lisbon was destroyed from this one event. Um, Lisbon, interestingly, was the same size as uh, New Orleans was in about the year 2004 or five. Lisbon was the same size in 1755. So when Hurricane Katrina happened, uh, one in 100 people in New Orleans died, whereas in Lisbon, it was one in five, to give you an idea of the magnitude. They had the same population, but one in every five people in Lisbon died that day, and it was the greatest city, arguably, in the West. And that one disaster seared the conscience of Europe. Like, how could the largest, most powerful empire in the world be decimated in a single hour like that? That single, um, that single earthquake and tsunami birthed the study of seismology, which is kind of interesting for any of you geeks. Josiah, I'm looking at you. Seismology was born in that moment. Um, and then also the science of building buildings to withstand earthquakes, because they realized that the arches didn't go down. And any building that was built with brick that was diagonal and sort of like um, overlapped with each other rather than vertical. And instead of having brick at 90 degree angles, if they were diagonals, they stood. So they're like, hey, there must be something to it. And that's when the, the engineering uh, kind of revolution of, of not having buildings fall over and earthquakes started then. And another th a big thing to come from that day was the Enlightenment. This was the moment, arguably the moment, when many of the most famous Western Europeans and the most famous philosophers alive began to ask if God was truly good. Uh, and so I didn't know this living in Lisbon, that like this one really famous earthquake and tsunami that destroyed the city is also the reason that all of the philosophers who I know by name 
who happened to be atheist, a lot of them were atheists because of that earthquake. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for them because they're like, the people were celebrating All Saints Day, right? They were worshiping God and he let one in five be destroyed in their act of worship. So what did it all mean? And uh, again, if this is why a lot of the philosophers left the faith, we have inherited, they say that we're living in the post-enlightenment era. So we're living in the sort of intellectual afterquakes. And that, that earthquake in Lisbon still affects us every single day because the entire worldview of the West is dependent on those philosophers who left the faith because of this earthquake. So this is something we live with every day, even if you've only learned about this earthquake today. So they started to ask questions like, why is there pain? Why is there evil? And why is there injustice in the first place? And people call this the problem of evil. Has anyone heard this phrase before, before the little video I put up? They call it the problem of evil because it's a problem. <laughs> it's hard to explain. Um, it's arguably the most philosophically defensible reason to disbelieve in the God of the Bible. I'm not saying it's a, I'm not saying that it's a, it's a knockout argument, but most arguments are pretty weak, but that's actually a, it's, it's the most philosophically hard problem, hard problem to, to defend as to why evil and injustice works or why it, why it exists. So David Hume in England, after this earthquake, phrased it probably in the most important, most memorable way. He said, if God, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able to prevent evil but not willing? That makes him malevolent. Or is he both able and willing to prevent evil? Well, then why do we have evil? And so it's sort of this like, does God wish he could stop evil, but he's not strong enough to? I'm going to put this in modern language. Is Does he wish he could stop evil, but he's not strong enough? Or is he able to, but he's sort of too lazy or he doesn't just want to, he just doesn't want to bother stopping it? And it's a, it's a hard question. Um, not only is it, uh, you know, the main problem voiced today, but it's probably, again, the most defensible philosophical argument. Now, I'll admit, I'm stepping a little bit outside of my comfort zone today. I'm all about, like, what did the Bible mean to its original interpreters? That's, you know, I, I've studied Bible translation before. I'm all about what did the original audience understand? How can we apply that today? Today, we're entering into more theology and, and philosophy, which is adjacent, but not my main wheelhouse. So we'll, we'll all swim through this together and see how we, how we come out, okay? Um, this problem didn't escape the biblical characters. They were not foolish enough to let their lives go by without asking God this question. And I find this crazy. Three separate characters in the Bible ask God this very question. They say, why is there pain? Why does suffering exist? Why is there evil? And God does not answer any of them. I mean, doesn't that blow your mind? So Job, David, and Habakkuk all ask God why, and he does not give an answer. No serious theologian or philosopher doubts God has a good answer. You know, it's kind of it's kind of silly that he's either not powerful enough to fix evil or that he doesn't care or whatever. Um, that's, you know, they say that's to, to judge God based on our own understanding. We'll say it's perfectly reasonable to know that God has a reason, but he's chosen not to reveal it to us. We understand that God has his complex and very multifaceted reasons, but they're, they're often too big for us 
to understand. Um, some people have argued that the very answer to why evil exists, if you plumb down, we don't have the time, but if you plumb down to why evil exists as a result of free will, it would actually get into quantum mechanics since almost all humans would not be able to understand it until now. Anyway, so we won't get into that. Um, but we won't, I think it's safe to say we will never have a direct answer to this question until we go to be with God. But one thing the Bible's very clear on is that he will meet us face to face and he will speak to us. In each of those three instances, when they ask God, why is there suffering? He doesn't give an answer, but he does then comfort the one asking. So uh, what do we do when we don't know the answer to this question? What, what do we do when the Bible doesn't tell us why suffering exists? Uh, it hasn't told us, but there are many things that you can kind of be clever and dig here. The Bible has told us many other things and directly. So if you do some digging, a lot of theologians and philosophers, the most brilliant ones who've ever written, have written a lot on this, and they've sort of developed a picture together. So they say, well, why did God create us? The Bible's very clear on this. He created us for his glory, to know him, to be in relationship with him, to love him and to obey him. Those are just some of the reasons. He created us to be ambassadors or sort of his vice regents on the world. We're the only ones that have the image of God. Not even the angels are made in the image of God. And he's sort of, he's given us this role, this job as an ambassador of sort of someone who's, people who are like him, not, not fully, obviously, but we are like him in some ways and we are to take stewardship of this world. So we're made in his image and then these philosophers will say, well, how can we know him and how can we follow him or truly obey if we don't have a choice? Have you ever wondered this? Like, how can you obey God if you weren't ever given the choice? So God wants people who truly love him, not just robots, not just automata who just respond like they're programmed to. He wants free and chosen relationship. And so God made us truly free. But with that freedom comes the freedom to disobey God. The freedom to walk with God means the freedom to walk away as well. So if God made us like robots, think of this. If he made us like robots or programs, there wouldn't be any sin. But would there be relationship? Could there be love without any sort of covenant or choice? If he gave us the ability to choose bad or good, but put no actual bad options in our orbit, would we be free? Or if he didn't ever give us the chance to choose bad in the first place, would we be free? So a lot of philosophers say that to be in a real relationship, there has to be a choice not to have a relationship. Um, you know, a covenant is like, a, say, a marriage or a relationship is freely entered into uh, by both sides. And this is a bit crude, but um, chaining someone in your basement is not a covenant or a free relationship. And they say that if God wants to be in a covenant with us, we need to, it needs to be agreed on by both sides. So to be able to love God and obey him means, again, we have to have the choice to disobey. Obedience means that disobedience is an option. And to walk with him means you can walk away. So um, that this philosophers say, theologians say, Augustine says this, is why God made us free. And this is where it gets really interesting. And some of this was brand new to me. Um, to be truly free, God allowed for us to make these choices, right? So in order to know us, to love us, to have real relationship with us, God allowed the existence of evil. God allowed the existence 
of sin. We're going to be answering some questions here you've probably asked your whole life and maybe never gotten an answer to. Like, did God create evil? Did God create sin? So listen up. Um, so in order to know us and have this relationship, God allowed for the possibility of evil and sin to exist. Because to say no to God, to walk away from him, to have the choice to not enter into a covenant with him is essentially sin. It's walking away from God. And he knew to have a real relationship with us, that had to be an active option and choice. And so did he create sin? No, but it's tricky because he allowed for it. And in his sovereignty, he foresaw it and he did not do anything to change it. You see this? So he allowed for sin. He knew it was going to happen and he did not change it. Because again, God's outside of time. All of it's the present to him. And he knew it was going to happen. He did not do anything to change it. So some people say, hey, God created evil. Now, I don't think the Bible supports that, but he allowed the possibility of it and then gave us the free choice to exercise that or not. But he knew it was coming and he was not surprised by say what the serpent did in the garden. He was not surprised by any of it. He foresaw all of it before creation began. Again, we're out of my normal depth and probably a lot of yours too, but I also think it's fascinating. So let's move through this together. Uh, philosophers go farther in arguing that to know God, you need a degree of rationality and morality. I don't agree with them fully on all these points. Like, I believe that the, ment the severely mentally handicapped are still in the image of God, but I get what they're saying, that to know God, you do need a degree of rationality and morality and wisdom. And this is where it gets fascinating. If you were born into a, a perfect and idyllic state, like in the Garden of Eden or a heaven, you could not develop, they say you could not develop morality or rationality, at least in any sense of the word as we're familiar with it. So what? So think about this. Think about any kind of wisdom or any kind of morality. It involves making the right choice over what? Over the wrong choices. Wisdom and morality and rationality involves making good choices over bad choices. And the argument is that if there are no bad choices and no possibility to make the wrong call, then rationality, morality, and wisdom could not develop, at least in any sense, as we are familiar with it. So through learning, through your upbringing, through your experience, especially your experience, you learn wisdom and you learn morality, often through failure or through reading, learning from others, learning from your parents. So as you're growing and making all these decisions, you see which ones lead to fruit, and which ones lead to pain or hurting others, hurting yourself or walking away from God. So how do you know what a bad choice is? How have you learned this in life? How have you learned not to touch the stovetop and things like that? You learn because often the wrong choices lead to someplace you don't wanna go. They lead to physical pain, emotional pain, or a result you didn't want. Um, and if you make bad decisions enough, what happens is you die. So if you, if you make enough, bad decisions, if that leads you to death, a lot of philosophers say there's actually a very good and graceful reason that we undergo pain. We often just think of pain in the negative, but a lot of people say, well, pain is what keeps you alive and what keeps you from dying. So sorry, we're in, this is a more philosophical message than I've done in a year and a half and probably will for another year and a half, but this is where we are today. It's a perfect moment in the Joseph series to step away and address this really meaty, heavy problem of evil. So, um, if you make bad decisions that often leads to your death and pain spares you from that. Have you guys ever heard of the people who never feel pain? Has anyone seen a news story about these people who never see pain? It's very interesting. They're almost always women and they're almost always very gentle natured. 
The reason is all of the others who are born like this don't make it out of toddlerhood. Normally it's the most docile, gentle people who have, even have a chance because people who don't feel pain put their hands in boiling pots. They roughhouse too hard. They jump out of trees at 40 feet high because they've never felt pain and nothing keeps them back. And most of them die in toddlerhood. And it's just the luck of having been born an extremely uh, sort of tempered and, and docile person that some of these people make it into adulthood. Uh, fascinatingly, they're actually um, looking into a lot of these people's brains to figure out uh, how to do better on uh, pain relief and stuff for like surgery and like recovery. Like how do they not feel pain and what can we do to like give that to people, which is at least for a few days after surgeries and stuff. Um, but pain is actually, it can be completely twisted and ruined, but pain is a grace. And it's the reason most of us are alive because it keeps us safe. Although we often just think of it as an evil. So there are strong, strong arguments that to be truly free, to be like God or to be in his image and to be able to know him as rational, wise and moral creatures, there had to be some serious negatives in our world. Otherwise, at least as we know it, we would never have become wise, moral or rational. We'd just be these sort of mindless, floating, happy beings responding to instinct. So pain is necessary if we are to develop wisdom and the ability to know God rationally. Now, this was all new to me. I had not, I had not dug into this before, and it was, it was fascinating. And I, there's probably some good arguments to be had against this, and I'm not aware of what they are, but keep going with me. Um, God made us like him. He made us in his image, and he made us capable. It's the one thing that we, uh, one of the things that makes us distinct from all of the other creation is that we are capable of relationship with him. And it meant not just blind instinct, but this morality, this wisdom and rationality. Uh, and in order to develop that, you can't be in an antiseptic environment. There has to be a kind of wrong answer. There has to be a possibility for sin or pain in order to develop that wisdom and make the right choice. Now, remember, at, at, a lot, at this, a lot of people chafe. They're like, well, why would God, why would a good God ever create pain in the first place? And these philosophers, again, we're talking Augustine and Aquinas, some really big hitters here. They say, God's goal for us is not our goal. Oftentimes our goal is to live as happy a life as possible with as little pain as possible. But God's goal for us is the transformation into his image. His goal for us is not an idyllic life, at least here on earth. He does have that for us in heaven. But uh, his goal for us is to be transformed into the image of his son. And in his sovereignty, though we don't fully understand why, he ordained the freedom and this possibility of evil and gave us pain as a grace to guide us in life. Now, there's all sorts of ramifications of this we can't get into. Uh, it makes a lot of sense on the individual level. Like, you know, if someone makes bad choices in their own life, they often will suffer in their own life, and that just seems fair, right? But oftentimes, people make bad decisions in their own life and others have to suffer. And that's where this really hurts, right? That, you know, the father who um, spends his entire paycheck on alcohol and then the kids go hungry, right? Like that's, that is an injustice to those children and it wasn't their choice, it was his. But again, in order to be free, people can ruin their own lives and sadly, they can ruin other people's lives as well. But it seems like all in all, in God's sovereignty, he decided to create rather than not create. And he decided to make us free, which means that sometimes we suffer by other people's experiences and not just our own. Like in 1619, I don't know if you knew this, but for about 120 years, this you know, fledgling European outpost had no slavery. 
And then in 1619, there was a merchant boat that had slaves on it and they weren't able to sell them anywhere because all the markets were like, ah, we're fine, like in Europe. And so they're like, well, let's go try that colony on that, you know, the one way on the other side of the ocean. Let's just see what happens. And so in 1619, they came over to our country, to the East Coast, and they sold 20 African slaves. And what they ended up doing, you know, they committed an atrocious sin for their own lifetime. But think of what door they opened. They opened a door to having, I think it's either four or six million more African slaves sold into this country for the next 250 years. So you have people's choices can, can impact people in their own time, but then they can go on for centuries and impact others. And this is really difficult. This is the difficulty with freedom, is that people can make decisions that really mess with people for hundreds of years, even thousands of years. So this is a lot to handle for anyone, uh, but be encouraged if you don't quite get it, because neither do I. And neither has any great philosopher, even the ones who focus on this very issue. So anyone says, anyone who says they fully get this is lying. Uh, Augustine, Aquinas, even in the modern day, there's a guy named Alvin Plantinga, who you should read on this, incredible. But none were able to, able to solve this problem. So don't be bothered if you don't fully understand. But do know that God's reasons for allowing evil are good. His reasons are sufficient and in his goodness and wisdom, he's made the right call, even if he hasn't fully let us in on what that is. We will know someday. We will know when we're with him. So where does that leave us, right? So he creates us free, and there's also a ton of evil and, like, suffering to navigate all alone. Is that, is like, is that life? Uh, but that's the beautiful part, is that we're not alone, and he does not forsake us or does not leave us to walk alone in that. So like Job, when we ask we receive no answer. Like, why does suffering exist? Sometimes we know it's for God's greater good, and other times we just can't see what the point is. Um, so why does this exist? He doesn't give us an answer, but he is with us. He does go before us, and we can know that he faced all the evil in the world when he came as Christ. I don't know if you know this, that there is not a major religion in the world that has a satisfying answer. It's not just Judaism and Christianity that have no full answer right in their scriptures as to why evil exists or for what ultimate purpose. No religion answers that question, at least to any satisfaction for any philosopher. But unlike any other religion, Christianity is unique in that God himself sees this problem and chooses from before time began to become the primary victim of all of that evil. So the problem of evil is at least maybe not solved, but it's fully faced by God himself. God made us free that we might know him, but he knew that that would lead to sin and death. So he wrote himself into the story in the form of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He lived without sin. And he lived that perfect image that we were always meant to be transformed into. He became our high priest and he became sin for us. He became evil for us so that he could die with it and bury it forever. He became sin it says, and that and God crushed all the world's punishment on Jesus himself. And Jesus was a part of this decision. He chose to be the one victim for all evil. He chose to be forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. And when he defeated sin, he finally cried out on the cross, one of the most famous Greek words that's grammatically a huge mess, but it's tetelestai, and it means it has been finished, or it is finished. And he goes ahead to prepare a place for us where there will be no tears. 
In the book of Revelation, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be, shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God created us to know him, and you cannot have fellowship or obedience or love in a programmed relationship. If you're a computer program, you cannot have love with the programmer. You cannot have those things if there's not freedom. And that means the freedom to walk away as well as the freedom to walk with. So this life carries pain. This life carries death and even evil. But God is in control. And for reasons known to him, he won't and he doesn't answer this question, at least in this life. But he doesn't leave us to flail in that pain. He meets us in that pain. He faced it himself and he wrote himself into the story to conquer it face to face. And one day we know that every knee will bow and every single evil will face justice and judgment by him. There's not a single wrong thing that any human being, including you, has ever done that will not face judgment by God. And every tear, for those who, who know him, every tear will be wiped away. Uh, let me pray to close us. Father, we thank you for... Uh, uh, helping us through this really difficult subject. One of the most uh, difficult that, that anyone has taken on and that we still don't have a fully, fully satisfying answer to. But I pray, Lord, that you would show this to people, um, that you are sovereign, that you have, been, um, you have been in this, that evil did not surprise you, sin did not surprise you, but that it's actually a, a part of the world that you chose in order that we might know you and love you. I pray that you would help us to answer these questions when our own friends are, whether atheists or, or sort of walking away from the faith, I pray that you'd give us grace and help when we're experiencing pain and suffering and death. Help us to plumb the depths of this with you, to search this out in prayer and meditation with you, uh, and to understand, whether here or when we come to meet you, why there is pain and suffering in the world. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.